0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: So I'm going to focus on the cardinal virtues for um, a good chunk of this talk, and then I'll talk about the, the theological virtues. And I'm, I'm following the pattern that you can find in St. Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, where in the first part, um, he treats the the virtues, the moral and the intellectual virtues, the cardinal virtues as a special class. And and, um, as he gets to the end of his his first part, um, he he then transitions to look at the return of the human being to God. So the the work as a whole, the Summa Theologiae, is um, a reflection upon how everything in, in one sense has come forth from God, Um, And um, so the first questions deal with some distinctions between philosophy and theology, but then um, the the created order and how the created order has issued from God. So first questions about God himself, um, and then ultimately why did he create and what's the nature of his creation, the structure of the human person um, after treating the angels. And then he gets into um, considerations of our return to God. And takes on questions related to that that deal with our natural ability to return to God. So he he looks at our yearning for fulfillment, happiness, and and how um, we are oriented ultimately towards God. But we don't know that from the outset. Um, Certainly don't know that without the special help that grace provides in order to define our end. Um, he reflects upon the structure of the human person, which is really pivotal for a full account of the virtues and the, the very nature of the, of the human act, uh, the moral act, and analyzes its structure, reflects upon our passions. And um, he has a lot to say about our passions, a very rich account. Those of you who are interested in psychology, um, interested in, in the emotions and how they, they work and interact with our intellectual capacities. Um, I, I strongly encourage you to to read through Aquinas' treatment of that uh, questions twenty three through forty eight of the first part uh, of the second part of the first part of the Summa Theologiae, and and uh, then he eventually treats the virtues, treats natural law, eternal law, and and then a really big transition in the Summa Theologiae where where he he takes up explicitly the theological virtues. So first faith. And then starting in question 17 of the second part, he looks at hope. And then question 23, he begins to reflect upon charity and, and um, has some really insightful uh, things to say about each of those theological virtues. And then he returns to the cardinal virtues, but now looking at them with the, the kind of, of clarity and hope and um Um, aspirations of human flourishing that the theological virtues provide. So there, there actually are two different treatments of the cardinal virtues in the Summa. First one where he's not explicitly taking in the theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity, and then a much richer and deeper account of the cardinal virtues that's informed by his his, um, understanding of those theological virtues. And so that's the bridge of nature and and grace that I will be focusing on today. And what I'll have to say about the cardinal virtues themselves are drawn from both the the, uh, sort of strictly philosophical treatment of them, but even more so from the theological treatment of of those virtues and um, if, if you do, and I again, I strongly encourage you to, to pick up um Aquinas' Summa Theologiae, um, read read a, a question a day, um, and you'll see that that he gets into some some fascinating um and detail-oriented treatments of each of the, the cardinal virtues. So um I, I don't presume that that you've all been studying um uh, virtue ethics. I, I'll say a few things about virtue first. Um What what is a virtue? Um, Aquinas relies heavily on Aquinas' understanding of what a virtue is um, and and refers in several places to uh, something that Aristotle says in the sixth chapter of the first book of the Nicomachean Ethics, where he he emphasizes that um, a a virtue makes, or I'm sorry, the second book um, of the Nicomachean Ethics. he emphasizes that a virtue makes a person good and enables his or her work to be done well. Okay, um, there's more to say about it when he when he comes to define a virtue. He he defines a virtue as a as a habit, um, and he means a habit in in something um, different than how we often speak about habits. He's he's not talking about the way in which you. You um, have the habit of picking up your phone and seeing um, if your friend has returned your text um, every five minutes, or or often you do that—maybe every every five Um, seconds—and that that's a habit, but it's not a habitus. It's not a it's not a deep habit in the in the sense that Aquinas or Aristotle means it. A a habit is is a kind of of um, deeply settled way of of orienting you to act a particular way, okay? So habits are dispositions, they dispose you to certain kinds of actions. They're themselves perfections of you as a human person, in particular a perfection of some power or combination of powers that you have. Um, and um, they make you ready to act. So in one way, they're a kind of completion, and in another way, they're they're a beginning, they're they're a potency, they're they're um, an enabler for you to act a particular way. Um, I'm, going, I'm focusing on on good habits, which we call virtues, but the same thing can happen with bad habits. Um, you can you can have a, a kind of deeply um, entrenched disposition to act viciously, um, to do things that you ought not, even though you know you should not. Okay, But we're, we're focusing here on on virtues and um, the. We, we have certain helps in our nature to develop the virtues as opposed to devices and e- even more helps, uh, supernaturally more helps in the case of the theological virtues. The, um, the cardinal virtues are called cardinal for um, a, a couple of reasons, but um, it's it's worthwhile to, to think about the etymology of, of cardinal. Um, a cardinala um, is a, um, it's a, it's a hinge. It's uh, like a, a hinge on a door, and um, uh, I think Aquinas, the tra- tradition, the tradition uses this term because the cardinal virtues you can think of as as the the means by which the door to living a life well turns. Okay, um, they they um, they're not they're not the door. the The door is, is, so to speak, your your actions, but they open that door so that your actions can be um, directed towards what is right and good. You probably all know um, what the cardinal virtues are. Um, At least you've heard of them. And um, I've sometimes seen people pick up the question of whether there could be more than four. And Aquinas is quite certain that there can only be four. In fact, he he argues that um, other virtues are relatable to these cardinal virtues. But I'll, I'll say a few things about why there are these four in a, in a minute, but first I, I, wanna, I wanna talk about those four cardinal virtues. So the first um, um, is courage. Okay? And courage is uh, maybe a handy definition. It's fearlessness in the face of what is fearful. When when Aristotle is looking at courage, he does so uh, thinking about extreme cases. Aristotle often thinks about paradigms, and um, Aquinas is a little more generous in the way that he thinks about about those paradigms. He recognizes that fortitude, another word for for courage, um, has both uh, physical and and um, spiritual or 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 um, psychological dimensions to it. Um, All kinds of things can make us fearful. We can be fearful to pick up the phone and call someone um, because we don't see their face. We can be fearful about um, reporting, um, a, a um, ethics violation if we're working for a corporation. You can be fearful about confronting your friend who's um, engaged in activities that um, are destructive of, of himself and, and other people, right? Those are those are things that can really be um, feared and for good reasons. In each of those there, there is a kind of death that occurs I mean if, if the most fearful thing is is facing your death and to go back to Aristotle Aristotle's thinking of of uh, the fearfulness of, of a soldier um, particularly a, a citizen soldier who's who's defending his city and and um, is staring at a um, an enemy horde with um, a lot of spears that are soon to be, potentially lodged in his body, right? That's pretty fearful. And he doesn't say be altogether without fear. That's not courage. Courage is um, being fearless in the face of the fearful. The fear does not go away. And and this is a theme that you'll see in um, the way that Aristotle and, and Aquinas think about temperance or moderation as well. The goal is not the elimination of your your appetite, the, it's not the elimination or suppression of your desire as such. It's the perfection of your appetite. Okay, it's it's um, a matter of, of striking the right balance. And in the case of of those things that we fear, um, the balance is principally between um, what you are are. Um, terrified by on the one hand and what you have hope for on the other. Okay. Um, Hope is always directed towards some good. You want to achieve something and you're willing to dare uh, public exposure an embarrassing conversation or um, being pierced with, with spears um, in order to pursue that good thing. The, the, um, um, ethical um, management of the company you work for or your friend's well-being or the safety of your city right those are the goods that you're willing you're willing to um, to uh, promote even though it's terrifying to step forward in the right action. okay that's that's where courage comes in right Courage is this deeply settled disposition to do what's right. In the face of what is fearful, but um, again, one should not imagine that you you have an obligation or a goal or it's even um, a, a right aspiration to be fearless altogether. Okay, um, it's it's feeling fear rightly, still pursuing the good in the face of what's fearful. the The, uh, the second cardinal virtue is is temperance or moderation, and this is a, a correct or right orientation towards those physically pleasurable goods—goods right? of goods the table, goods of the bedroom, uh, goods of whatever sensual sort that that um, you're rightly disposed towards—and um, yeah, that is to say, those are goods, regardless of of whether or not um, they're right for you at this moment. But what what temperance or moderation in conjunction with with prudence enables you to do is to be rightly disposed towards those goods. Um, and even, even in the sense of anticipating, uh, the, the attendant pleasure that comes with, with a good meal, um, right. It's, it's again, not the goal to be, um, without Desire for the goods of the table, which just uh, stay within that class of, of goods, um, to to uh, pretend as though those are evils in some way is to uh, be basing your judgment on a mistaken view of of the human being. Right, we're made. God made us such that that um, we want those things that are nourishing. For our body, and uh, we want those things that are nourishing for our body, um, particularly when they taste good. No, no um, evil is involved in that as such. Okay, the the evil comes in if if you're uh, taking more than your share, more than you should, or um, uh, you've you've elevated uh, the goods at the table to being more important than. Um, Finishing your your essay for Dr. Morrissey or um, if if you've somehow um, uh, supplanted the right order of goods, but um, to, to be without any kind of desire for goods at the table or other sensual goods it would be to be a bore. And um, to want them excessively or inappropriately, excessively in particular, would be a, a kind of gluttony, right? So just as in the case of, of courage, there's a balance between hope and, and fear. In the case of temperance or moderation, there's a balance between gluttony and boorishness. Um, the third cardinal virtue is justice. And that's a little more complicated in, in um uh, a number of ways than is courage or temperance. Why is it complicated? Well, um, there's there are different types of, of justice. There's a general sense of justice and then um, two varieties of um, what uh, Aristotle and Aquinas call particular justice. Okay, so general justice or justice in general. Um, Aristotle uh, defines justice as that virtue, which is always another person's good. Justice is is a virtue. Again, it's a settled disposition. It's part of, um, if you have it, it's it's a perfection of your very self, but it's it's always exercised for the sake of other people, at least one other person. Justice is, is other oriented and general justice, he argues, is a a kind of uh, of, um, settled disposition to always promote what's good for others, right? It it entails the other moral virtues. Um, The particular types of justice come in two varieties, one one of which is, I think, probably really familiar um, to all of us. When when you think of law courts, um, you think of justice being executed, so corrective justice. Uh, corrective justice has to do with exchange in one way or another. So we have the courts in order to correct um, when the the agreements that should be part of the exchange, whether they're they're stated or not, um, are are um, restored. Okay, so corrective justice has to do with making sure that each party receives um, his or her good distributive justice that's the the second kind of, of justice um, that is maybe familiar to us in some ways but I think the ways in which Aquinas and Aristotle were thinking of distributive justice is maybe a little bit less familiar but when when we are looking to uh, distribute goods um, we're, we're exercising distributive justice if we're distri- if we're giving those goods to those who really deserve them. The, um, the way in which Aristotle and Aquinas are particularly thinking about distributive justice has to do with honors. Um, so um, in, in the United States, you probably have this in Canada too. You've got highways named after um, uh, famous people. You've got universities named after um, famous people. You've got um, honors bestowed upon someone because of their remarkable contribution. There's there's not been an exchange, really. In fact, there there would be something unfitting about someone striving to to live a magnificent life in which they do great things for their their political community, um, their their society in order to receive honors. Right. There's something um, it, it seems tainted about doing that for the sake of some kind of exchange. Right. But. But uh, city officials, um, um, other organizations, institutions in general, do see fit to distribute honors, to bestow them upon those who are deemed worthy of them. But you can even think of distributive justice also in terms of, of certain welfare considerations. Um, and um, picking up the question of whether or not we do owe to um, all children at least a a, um, um, a, a K-12 education, um, whether we do we do owe to all individuals um, uh, making sure that that they've got adequate housing okay and and I know that there are, are varying positions on those those fraught, questions um, about who should be the distributor, right? And how how the goods should be distributed. We don't need to get into those questions to, to see the point that you're taking up the question of there of what is distributive justice. Okay. Um, there's, there is a, a mean that applies here as well. Um, it's, it's a mean between um, being deficient in in what's being given towards others or being excessive. Right, um, you can you can excessively give something to another. You can see this particularly in in the case of honors bestowed. Right, if 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 um, you bestow an honor on Doctor Morsi such that that um, um, you're you're pronouncing his apotheosis or something. Right, he's he's going to be divinized. This um, used to happen in in Rome. Um, um, divinized by 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 uh, Trinity Western University. Right. In other ways, we we do hope that uh, Doctor Morrissey will be divinized uh, by by our Lord. And one way of thinking about the Christian life is is inching ever more closely to kind of a full deification. But I mean, that's a way to think about heaven. Um, that that um, as Saint Athanasius said, that God became man so that we can become God. Right? Um, but bracket that out. Um, the the uh, Um, The point I'm making is is that um, one one can be excessive in in the distribution. Um, One can be um, uh, excessive when it comes to corrective justice. Um, It's it's hard to think that you could really be excessive in in wanting to promote the good for others. So when you go back to that notion of general justice, um, I don't don't think there's a a way to to go too far in, in wanting to promote the good. The good of others, um, and you can push back on that if you if you like. But general justice, part of what makes thinking about justice um, a little more confusing is I don't think general justice falls into the into the same pattern of thinking of excess and deficiency um, in the way in which the other moral virtues do. So I'm using this term moral virtue because um, it's a term that that um, both Aristotle and Aquinas. Employ virtues of character is another way to describe this. These these are virtues in which your your passions, your your basic appetites, um, or in the case of justice, your rational appetite, are um, perfected. Okay, but there there are there is a class of uh, virtues called intellectual virtues or virtues of the mind. Those are perfections of, of the capacities that you have to think well in particular ways, to think well about um, what to do or not do. That has to do with prudence, the fourth of the cardinal virtues. But there's also an intellectual virtue called techne or artis. It, it's um, technical skill it is a perfection of your mind. if you If you know how to... How to repair your motorcycle, or your, I guess your snowmobile, um, then then the the um, um, that's that's a that is a virtue. Okay, and the um, uh, there are there are also virtues that have to do with your ability to understand to achieve scientific knowledge. If if you have have um, mastered organic chemistry. Right. You've got scientific knowledge of, of organic chemistry that that is a, a virtue of your mind. Um, ultimately, we're aspiring for wisdom, right, which is a combination of both your ability to understand first principles, your your um, perfected capacity to acquire scientific knowledge directed towards the, the very best objects, ultimately God and, and all those things that pertain to God. Okay. So these, these are the, the, um, the four cardinal virtues and there are four because of the way in which the human being is, is made. Okay. Um, they're perfections of the person, but they're not all perfections of the person in the same way. Right. So when, when Aquinas talks about the, the structure of the human being, um, he notes that there are are certain fundamental tendencies we have to be oriented towards things that are good for us. We we want to be satisfied. We we want those things that are going to be fitting to us. We have what he calls a concupiscible appetite. That's that's an appetite for those things that we desire because they're they're good in in some fashion, right? They may not be good for you at this moment in this manner and at this time, um, in this amount, whatever, but they're still good for you. And we have, we have a, uh, a right orientation towards them an appetite for them. So temperance moderation is the perfection of your concupiscible appetite. And I, I began by thinking about your concupiscible appetite, your, your uh, desire for, for good things that, that complete you. Um, as a human being, because I think it's a little easier to understand the irascible appetite in relation to it. The irascible appetite is your your appetite whereby you you rise up and protect what you love. Okay. So your concupiscible appetite, that's the appetite that, that orients you towards those things you love, those goods. Okay. And, and, um, that could be wine, can be um, double quarter pounders with cheese, it can be um, the complete set of uh, the low classical library. Uh, these, these, are, these are things that you love and uh, pursue. And if someone or something stands in the way of your achieving those goods, of acquiring them, of making them part of you in some fashion, you get angry. You get angry. That's that's the irascible appetite at work. And so learning how to be angry at the right time, in the right way, in the right manner. um, That's that's where courage comes in. Uh, But irascible. Because the the root word there, era, uh, means anger, anger. The anger is, again, because of the threat to something that you love, something that you desire. And um, you you never are angry about things that are not in reference to what you love or desire, if you think about it. Um, And and one way to to, um, think through your anger is is to um, identify what it is that that you feel um, is being threatened. and it's not always the case that being angry is, is wrong, okay? There's, there's a right way to be angry, courageously, okay? As, as the, the most dominant of those. Okay, so those, those are our, our, our basic appetites. We've got two basic appetites. And um, guess what? Um, so do all animals, right? So do all animals. Not all living things, because trees don't have those kinds of appetites. Um, uh, despite what what one may think, in in uh, Oregon, the the um, um, as say, trees don't talk. They don't they don't move about. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Tolkien. Ents um, are are mythological um, moving trees. Okay, unfortunately, they're they're actually persons. If if uh, you want to be more precise, but um but animals do have those appetites and um those appetites are are the the underlayment so to speak for our passions in general okay um my dog has has passions um and those passions work with a kind of of judgment that something is good right and um uh, what what are the treatments of of desire judgments about things for which we have desires that I find really compelling is is Alistair McIntyre's work, Dependent Rational Animals, where he he spends a good bit of time talking about ways in which human beings are are like um, other um, animals, non-human animals in in a number of ways. Um, What's different about us is that we judge our judgments. About things that that are good and seem fitting for us, right? because we've got a rational power that surpasses what what dogs have or other living things. So my my dog Hector, um, um, call him Hector the Protector. Um, I'm more on the Trojan side, um, um, but um, at least at least in terms of the admiration of the principal characters, and um, Hector the Protector is trainable. Um, I can I can step in and and um, now he's he's 13 so he's he's uh, hobbling about a little bit big dog but um, uh, and it is true you can't really teach an old dog new tricks but I I taught him tricks for a long time but but there I was I was training his desires and um, he was not exercising a, a kind of principal judgment over over his desires okay so we've got the conducive appetite and Temperance or moderation is the, the, the most significant way in which it is perfected. That's, again, your, your desire for, for goods, um, things that, that complete you in some way, food, um, um, family, um, other, other goods that, that are um, rightly desired. The irascible appetite is your, your appetite by which you rise up and want to protect that which is threatened. And then your, that justice I was talking about before, that's a perfection of your will, okay? Your, your rational appetite, which is not something that non-human animals have, um, but it's, it's this, this proper disposition to render to each his. Okay? And then finally, reason, right? Um, reason is, is perfected by prudence, Reason is is perfected by um, those other intellectual virtues I mentioned as well. But when we're thinking about the cardinal virtues, we're especially focused upon action. Okay? So it's, it's one thing to be. And, and if, if you're um, interested in exploring when we get to the Q&A, okay, how, how do you acquire these virtues? Um, um, and then what what is it to, to have a virtue and not exercise it? Uh, there are a lot of interesting questions related to that, but these these are are the four virtues that are especially directed towards action. Prudence is a little different because it's an intellectual virtue, principally, but in a secondary way, it's it's a kind of moral virtue. Because if you have prudence, then you you've got to have these other cardinal virtues. Um, you you can't act. You can't act prudently without the other cardinal virtues because they, they provide a kind of uh, set of uh, first principles to orient your, your um, decision-making capacity well, right? So um, prudence is, is right reason about what is doable, right? It's what is within your power. You cannot exercise prudence about things that are not in your power to do. You might wish that you could sprout wings and fly, um, but that's not something you can actually make a decision about. You just don't have that kind of of nature. So prudence doesn't really apply there. Uh, Prudence is is the master virtue for what lies within the realm of human action. And um, we exercise prudence when we act, we also exercise prudence when we reflect upon our actions or our failure to act. If we have prudence, you've got underlying capacities to think about your action, about um, your inaction, to reflect when you have an examination of your conscience, Um, but when it comes to um, the perfection of those powers, then you have prudence. So... We, we've, we've got these, these four cardinal virtues, and I said early on that, that they're necessary for human flourishing, but they're, they're not sufficient. Okay? Um, they're, they're necessary um, because you cannot flourish, you cannot be happy as a human being um, in, a, in a full sense without these virtues. Each one of these virtues, as I was saying, is a perfection of a particular part of the human being, each is unique and irreducible to any others. Okay, you, you cannot um, break down courage more and find your way to temperance or, or moderation, and and um, yet the other moral virtues are reducible. That is to say, traceable. I don't mean they're they're simply collapsed into um, the the cardinal virtues, but you can you can see how honesty. Is um, a part of justice. You can see how chastity is a part of moderation or temperance. Okay, um, it's in the case of chastity, temperance applied to um, one's sexual life, right? um, or in the case of those who are not married, lack thereof. Right, uh, but it's a it's a kind of of um, uh, perfection of of your your desires for um, the goods of of, of um, the conjugal life. So, what what is sufficient for human happiness is where grace comes into the picture, right? Um, and. The cardinal virtues, as I was saying, they're they're necessary for human happiness. They're they're not sufficient. I already named one virtue when I was talking about wisdom that that um, is um, also needed for human happiness. Um, but but in particular, the the theological virtues, faith, hope, and charity, are um, required for happiness. But simply having the virtues, even um, even if you were perfectly virtuous in the sense of having each of the cardinal virtues, um, even if you had those gifts of faith, hope, and charity, um, happiness is a matter of activity, it's a matter of action. So it it the goal is is not just to be virtuous. That that is not the goal of your life. You you are um, you should not think of, of your your efforts to to live good and holy lives as simply a matter of going to um, the the moral and spiritual gymnasium and and building up your your virtuous muscles and never never getting out and, and playing a sport or uh, being engaged in in some active way, right? Um, we're, we, we have the cardinal virtues for the sake of actions. We have the other intellectual virtues for the sake of, of activities. And when we think about our perfected desire for God, the, the, the image of heaven that Aquinas puts before us is one of full activity. We're, f- we're fully engaged in the, the contemplative union with God, fully perfected, okay, um, but but this is not like a, a Nirvana where where we're just satiated or nullified or however you you come at at um, a notion of Nirvana. I sometimes at the end of a of a long day think, boy, if I could just sleep, um, you know, a meal and sleep, and and every you know that's all I need to be happy, okay. Um, and, and that, that happens more <laughs> frequently than I would like to admit, but, um, um, that's not really happiness. Okay. That's, that's rest. Um, and we need rest in order to be restored, to, to be engaged again. Um, and, and some of the imagery that we have, uh, within, um, Christianity and, and Catholicism specifically of heaven, um, describe it as a, as a kind of rest, right? It's, it's a it's a rest from sorrows. It's a it's a rest from labors, um, but it's it's not a rest that is bereft from activity. Right? We, we are fully actualized, fully engaged, fully alive in that heavenly realm um, in our our um, union, our, our deified union with God and and um, in the, the kingdom of God. Okay, so that's on the other side of the veil, so to speak. And um, you don't have to, to um, um, uh, wait until you're there for the theological virtues. In fact, um, you, you may not get there without those theological virtues of, of faith, hope, and charity. So briefly on those, um, faith, faith is, each, each of these theological virtues, is, it's a gift. And God extends the gift of faith, extends the gift of hope, he extends the gift of charity. And the the movement starts with him. These other virtues I was talking about, your your parents help to mold them in you and your friends and your teachers and your coaches. You take over and can really work on yourself. um, But you can only go so far. You need the theological virtues in order to bring those cardinal virtues to a greater stage of perfection, but um, you can't work really hard and and acquire the theological virtues, right? The movement starts with God. He he gives a gift. A lot of people say no to the gift. Um, Even those who've said yes can say no to more of the gift. Right. So it's it's an it's a kind of give and take where you've got to accept the gift and work on it, nurture it through the way in which you um, strive for for holiness in your everyday life. You've got to be reflective. You've got to order your days. You've got to spend time in prayer, Um, visit uh, the Lord in the church, participate in the sacraments. And um, that indeed takes a lot of virtue, um, a lot of practice, but you're, 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 you've already accepted the gift in some fashion that's been extended to you, the gift of of faith and the gift of hope and the gift of charity. And although these are distinct, and they really are distinct virtues, um, um, it's not as though they, they um, are given separately, like I'm going to give faith. And then, you know, maybe in five years, God will send the gift of hope, um, and hopefully, then I'll be able to get charity. Um, they 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 tend to come together, and um, they do come together because they're they're a gift of of God Himself. They're a gift of of the Holy Spirit, um, distinct from the Holy Spirit, but given by the Holy Spirit. And um, when there there are ways in which you can order them. As I was on the airplane today, I, I reread um the, the work on hope that of uh, Joseph Piper um, and um, he has some really fascinating things to say there about about the virtue of of hope in particular that that um, I was thinking about this talk but but also some other things i'm I'm working on and also just my work as president um, at the University of Dallas where we, we we attract many wonderful students but we're in a, a period of of um, the world's history, in which there's a lot of despair on the one hand, and and then a lot of presumption on the other, um, and that is say, well, things are going to be all right. I don't need to work too hard at, at cultivating holiness or friendships or anything else. Or uh, despair in the sense that that life is just meaningless and um, a lot of deaths by despair, as as they're called um, now, where 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 people are are frittering away their their lives through. Um, drug use and, and other things, and and uh, even though we're a Catholic university, and and we tend to attract students who really want to do great things, they're susceptible to these challenges, as I'm sure you are as well, and and so too are our Dr. Morrissey and I. It, it takes constant vigilance to um, guard against despair and presumption, and um, what what um, people really draws out at the outset of this work is is the way in which every human being is is um, um, in a, a, a position of, of uh, being on the way okay um, he uses the language of, of um, homo viator or a, um, um, a, a Viator uh, status we're, we're in a state of journey okay stretched between our origin and our destination and what, what um, hope enables us to do is indeed to see that, that our, our destination is union with God. Okay? That, that's working upon our, our natural desire, but we really have hope that that divine union, the goodness of our full completion is possible. And you can see how how hope works closely with faith because one cannot see God as your full end or your true end without the virtue of faith. So faith perfects our intellect. It gives us a kind of, of certain knowledge. Even if our faith is small, we at least have enough faith to hope that there is um, the possibility of of the fulfillment of our desire. Our natural desire is to live forever and to know everything, right? Um, And um, despair would be to echo uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, a kind of of, um, uh, view of of that natural desire that all human beings have um, as as being an expression of of a useless passion, right? It's it's unfulfillable. What what it is to to be a Christian is is to see that that natural desire that we all have to know everything, to live forever, to be deified in some fashion. And, And I do I do think there is this this natural desire. Faith and hope bring that desire to clarity, to certainty. And gives you um, hope in particular, a justified aspiration that that's possible, right? That you could direct your life towards union with God. It's mind-blowing in a way. And and sad too, I, I, I'm a great lover of um, uh, the ancient pagans who um, would sometimes describe contemplation of God, union with God as, as a kind of aspiration. Um, but it's, it's um, one that, that could not be reached, at least not by nearly everyone. Um, maybe maybe a few could get there, maybe, just maybe. Um, but um, what sadness to, to recognize in yourself an aspiration to know the most deepest things about yourself, reality, the, the creator, of the world, um, and to yearn to live forever and to think, yeah, it's just not possible, right? With, with faith and hope, it's possible. And, and, and that's, that is a, an awesome thing to reflect upon. Charity, unlike faith and hope, um, uh, hope, hope is, is, is kind of like prudence. It, it allows you to exercise Supernaturally great judgments about about what's um, within your power, understood as as um, elevated by by God's gift. Um, they're, they're they're both attached to the intellect. Hope stretches between the intellect and, and will. Um, charity is is really a perfection of of the will, and yet um, has this power to reach into the very heart of things. Okay. So your, your intellect, faith, faith is about God, right? Um, just like your, your knowledge of organic chemistry, it's about organic, organic chemistry, love penetrates into the very heart of another. And, and charity is love by means of which you're able to, um, penetrate in, into the very bosom of God. You're only able to do that because God has um, extended, has given himself to you. Aquinas in um, the Secundae question 23 defines charity as, as God's friendship for man, God's friendship for man. He calls us friends. Uh, John the evangelist tells us, right? He, he, he calls us his friends and by means of that, that gift of friendship, we're able to be friends with God. We're able to, to, um, hope for a kind of, of you know, quality might sound too strong, but there is a kind of equality if you're deified with God, right? So charity is, is God's friendship extended to you by means of which you can exercise, live in friendship with God and with others. Right, that the great commandment, love God and love others. It's only possible to fulfill that truly with the gift of charity. Okay. So um, I'll leave it as a as a cliffhanger um, for you to to go into the rest of the secunda secunda and trace out how faith, hope, and charity elevate and perfect. Um, much more deeply each of those, those necessary virtues for, for living and acting well, the cardinal virtues. And stop at this point and I'm and, um, happy to receive whatever questions you'd like to ask.
2: Dr. Sanford, thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, I've got a very simple question. I'll, I'll, I'll just state it, I'll, I'll ask it. And then you can think about your answer while, while I explain while I'm, why I'm asking the question. Okay. So the question is, what are the first principles of ethics? Are, are, are there more than one moral principles? And, and the reason I'm asking the question is I heard you talk about virtues in a way that seems to imply that virtues are first principles, or at least prudence is, is a first principle. Mm-hmm. In in my introduction to philosophy class, today we were looking at, uh, just before I came here to this talk, we were looking at the United Nations Universal Declaration on Human Rights. Mm-hmm. And I was making the argument to them that these articles of the Declaration of Human Rights are the conclusions of moral reasoning. And you need first principles in order to do that reasoning and arrive at these sound conclusions. And uh, as we went through the list, I tried to argue uh, that this or that article pointed to these first principles of natural law or these first principles of moral reasoning. And I was using that to make the case for John Finnis's list of, of seven first principles of natural law. And mm-hmm. in my contemporary ethical issues class, we've been arguing about Finnis's list for a few weeks now. And my challenge to them has been, you know, is there anything we should cross off the list or add to the list? You know, some people will say there is no list of intrinsic goods. Therefore, there are no first principles of moral philosophy, or maybe there's one pleasure. And so I've been giving them the the Aristotelian argument against that. So to sum up, why I'm asking the question is that I know that we're kindred spirits. This is how we met at uh, philosophy conferences. We realized we're both Aristotelians and and Thomists. But today, who is our best interpreter of Aristotelian Thomistic moral philosophy? and if you want to get into the debates, it's going to be a debate over okay, what are the the principles of ethics and how many of
1: them are there? so what do you think? Well, I do like Finnis's list um, you know I, I I think there's something to that so let me you that was a very different question at the end, I want to say Chris but um, but <laughs> but let me let, let me uh, let us say what what are the first principles of ethics you asked at the beginning, and yeah. then you and then you know um, who is the best proponent of the best list, and then um, well, that's the implicit question, right? The explicit oh. <laughs> question
2: is, what is the list of principles? I, I tell my students there are seventeen. I'll cover them this
1: semester, but that implies, you know, the whole debate about new natural law theory and so on. Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate the question very much, and I, I'm going to, um, you know, Aristotle and Aquinas are a little different on on this question. Um I I am a, a, a natural lawyer. Um, and I don't mean what I was just doing with, with Chris, which is more like a civil lawyer or something, trying to um poke a question um in reply, but but um um I believe that there's a a, a natural law, and I, I believe that saying there's a natural law is not a matter of mere belief. I, I think recognizing that we have fundamental obligations that um, are are readily available to every thinking human being is um, uh, something that can be defended and articulated so uh, you know, how many are there right I'm, I'm more of a um, um, what what's called in in the debates about this a traditional natural lawyer than a new natural lawyer and um, I could say there are four Chris um, would be one way to come at this if if um, I don't know if, if any of you are looking at the uh, question 94 um, article 2 of the primo Secundae, where where Aquinas um, talks about the natural law and 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 he says well, there's there's a most basic precept of the natural law, which is good is to be done and evil avoided, and and then he identifies there to be um, a number of of um, uh, principles that are related related to that most basic principles, and 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 those principles are connected to again features of our anthropology. Um, features of our, of our nature. We, we recognize um, that it's good for us to pursue the preservation of our lives. And um, there's a host of, of things that are good there and, and evils to be avoided. We recognize that, that um, having and caring for children is a good, right? If we move up the chain um, from our vegetative level to our, our sense perceiving Level um, and and goods of the family, goods of community, goods of rearing children. Um, we also recognize that things like like um, knowledge are good, and worship of God is good, and uh, to fail in those things is is evil, right? And you can expand the list. That's a little different than the way Finnis comes at this, or or others in the in the New Natural Law tradition. There's, there's another way though in, um, so th- these are like the most basic moral principles um, which which are rooted in our, our very nature, our subjective participation in the eternal law. Um, because we're rational, because we can think about action, because we reflect upon our our fundamental inclinations, our orientations towards flourishing we can derive those principles and many more that are related to those, those principles. Um, and all the way to, you know, you start, you start thinking about, um, uh, you know, is, is, is boxing morally evil, right? So that's relatable to that, that precept about self-preservation in, in one way, right? So knowing what we know about concussions, if your goal is to, um, Cause a concussion in another person um, um, is that is that a, a proper goal? Well, there are goods of competition and and, and goods of of the um, um, uh, the ring. Besides that, that one might argue for, but but I know a number of of uh, natural lawyers. One of whom is a former Golden Glove boxer who now argues that boxing is wrong if the goal is to. Concuss another, but if you're scoring points, then no problem. Um, but there the I mean, principle of double effect reasoning. That's right. That's right. Exactly. You know, there's 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 a way in which um, virtues can serve as a kind of first principle for action, um, and um, Aristotle reflects on this at at length in the Nicomachean Ethics. I don't mean the very basic or most basic um, moral principles, but um, when when you as a child are instructed in the ways of of what constitutes um, um, what's noble, what's ignoble, what's what's good, what's bad, and you're you're receiving a moral education that instills in you um, a basic understanding about more broadly what's right and what's wrong. And as as you are uh, continuing your moral education, your your parents might um, put you in situations that are are fearsome, like learning to ride a bicycle or learning to stand in a batter's box while somebody's throwing a small object at you with marginal accuracy. Um, And and you've got to swing the bat, you've got to stay on the bike, right? And and you begin to to build um, a kind of basic courage. So um, by the t- by the time you're an adult, hopefully you've got courage, you've got temperance. You're not wondering um, when when you when you are sitting down to the table, um, you're not wondering whether or not to be temperate. You're wondering how to be temperate at this time um, with these people with this amount of food and, and that kind of thing, right? So you've got to kind of of basic understanding. First principles for your action are set. They've been ingrained. they become your second nature, your second nature, right? Virtues, this is an image that Aristotle uses a number of times. Virtues are your second nature. But within our our most basic nature, um, you do find those those fundamental moral principles that that Dr. Morrissey was talking
2: about. Well, I agree with Finnis that prudence, has to be on the list of first principles. So it's on his list of seven first Mm -hmm. principles of moral reasoning. He calls it practical reasonableness, which is a nice way of putting it. And uh, the other virtues are not on the list, but I think that makes sense because you can derive the other virtues as practical conclusions uh, that prudence implements. In other words, from your example, if parents are practically reasonable, they're not going to hide their kids inside. They're going to get them on the field in that baseball game so they can learn courage and and uh, moderation and all the rest of it. Yes. But Um, your answer was interesting. So you're going to side with this traditional view that says that uh, we need to have metaphysics and anthropology in order to (laughs) engage in moral reasoning. But as the years go by, I'm less convinced of that view, because people engage in moral reasoning all the time. And sure, there may be an implicit metaphysics, or there may be uh, implicit uh, descriptive judgments Mm -hmm. containing truths about reality in their moral reasoning. But more importantly, it's not moral reasoning unless there are prescriptive principles. Principles being used in combination with those descriptive truths, even if only implicit, of, of metaphysics and anthropology. So I think it, it, it's really important to identify what are these first principles. In, 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 in Introduction to Philosophy, we're using uh, Mortimer Adler's book, Ten Philosophical Mistakes. In the chapter we're looking at this week, Adler says, well, there's one first principle that we need to start with, and here it is. And so Adler's first principle comes from his interpretation of Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics. Uh, And he says, this first principle is desire the real good and nothing else. In other words, don't desire apparent goods, desire real goods. So what what I said to the class today is that can't be the only first principle because uh, a relativist would say, well,
1: the real desires good. for
2: real goods are just opinions. They're just subjective desires. So you need, you need more, more principles. In other words, this can only be an intermediate pr- principle. So Finnis takes this principle that Adler says is a first principle, and he makes it one of his 10 intermediate principles. And that makes sense to me because there has to be a list of first principles that name the intrinsically good things, right? No one can deny that these intrinsic goods are not intrinsically good. Yeah. And so once you know that, then yes, seek those real goods using the virtue of practical reasonableness or, or prudence, as you call but, it. But you know, just
1: just as just as we don't have to um, engage in metaphysics in order to practically reason, nor do we need to lead a read a list of of, of basic or intermediate. Principles in order to practically reason, right? So, I, I, I think, I think we're we're talking about two different questions, right? Um, I guess I was looking at okay, where do they come from, and and how can they 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 spread, right? Um, you're looking at a at it from a um, in media rays um, approach in a, in a way, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. And, 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 yeah, I and, agree. That's and, the way of putting it. Yeah, and 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 I I I'm comfortable with that. Um, and, and I think it, it depends on which question is, is really being asked. And, and sometimes in these debates we're not careful about that. But you do not need to be a metaphysician in order to practically reason and, and, um, and to practically reason excellently, right And I, and I do think we experience basic um, moral principles as part of the the uh, um, architecture of, of our, of our um, intellects and, and our experience of the world. Um, But that doesn't mean that that's, that's um, um, all that can be said about, you know, why is it that they're experienced that way? What does that mean? What justifies them? But I think when it comes to, to um, exercising practical reason, um, being, being practically rational, um, almost nobody is, is gonna start doing metaphysics or trying to, to count up a list, right? That's, that's, what, uh, that's what we're trying to do in philosophy where we say, you know, is this it, right? Is there more? Are we missing something? Um, is this too many? Um, where did these come from? What's, their, what's the justification for them? And those kinds of questions, which are really important, right, but, but um, there are a lot of good people in the world um, who um, don't wrestle with those Questions in, in that manner, who exercise the very principles that that Finnis articulates quite effectively.
2: Yeah. Okay. So I take this to be Meritans point about connatural knowledge, but still, as moral philosophers, we're, we're going to look at these people, and, and we're, we're going to say, okay, what what are the implicit, intrinsic goods that are the goals of all your action, and what mm-hmm. are the rules? universally objective norms that you are following in your moral action. I think it's worth identifying though. So if I understand your answer, you said there are four, and I'm saying with Finnis there are 17, seven uh, first principles (laughs) and 10 intermediate principles.
1: Yeah.
2: And, uh, uh, so th- that's good. Now we've identified uh, where, where we're making our stand. You know what I would say in response to you know do good, avoid evil. I would say you know thanks a lot. That's no help. Everyone knows yeah. that, and it's, it makes it sound like you know it's useless to read Aquinas because he's no help. At least at least with Adler when he says choose real goods not apparent goods, then we can have the conversation. Aquinas, Aquinas says that too, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and I say thanks a lot, Aquinas. I need need more. Uh, Finnis, to his credit, says you know aquinas just got started he didn't get finished mm-hmm. and and the worst thing that that Thomas do is they think that uh, aquinas is done and they don't do the hard work still required in moral philosophy so uh, that's what i'm pushing
1: at with this question all right Well, I, i'm 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 happy to be pushed at and and i i wouldn't say there are only four. I, I said in one sense there's four um, but I, I i do think i do think there's a way to trace the seven of um or four or three, okay. The the um, um, or you could say for Aquinas there are, there are thousands, right? Because we're adding to the natural law as as we chase out its implications, right? So um, you you might I'm sure you will disagree with this claim, um, and I've got to think it through more. But the the seventeen are traceable to the three.
2: Yeah, I'd have to hear the argument for that because uh, Grisey and Finnis make a strong case that the, the seven first principles are mm-hmm. intrinsic goods that are incommensurate with each other. And right. practical reasonists will say uh, we need some combination of all of them, but each of us has to
1: decide exactly what that combination should be. Yeah, the, in- the incommensurate claim is, is where this would, this would um, receive the most attention.
2: Yeah. So anyway, I'm trying to start an argument here, but I thought I'd grab the first question. Thank you for your response. We we can keep going later on, but I don't want to shut out the students. I just wanted to give you the context of what we're
1: talking about in our classes. I'm really Well happy That's fa- that's about. fascinating. And, and let me just say, for your sake and the sake of your students, you know, I I think I agree with you. Um, um, but when when it comes to the way we approach things in media, race. Um, and and I'm 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 less convinced of the the metaphysical um standing. I I I I have worries that, that Finnis and Grise and Boyle are are running into a, a kind of epistemology um over metaphysics, um, in the sense that that um and, and, and then I do I do worry about the the is ought um um, Nevertheless, shall meet um, concerns. That is to say, I, I when, when I think about nature, mm-hmm. um, I, 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 I do think that there are certain um, ways in which um, ought is part of the natural order, um, particularly with respect to the, the, the human being. Um, but um, that's that's another that's another. Um, you might agree with that, but um, I do. Yes. Okay. I do. Okay. So I think both both
2: Finnis and Adler have this interesting kind of moral reasoning, where they say that moral reasoning needs two types of premises. You need is judgments and ought judgments. The is okay. judgments we get from you know historical experience, life experience. The uh, the the ought judgments. Well, we're going to need some principles, not thousands of them, but, you know, a a manageable few that we can recognize as being uh, self-evident or better just as intrinsic goods or as universal, absolute moral norms. With those principles, we can combine is and ought together, and that's how we derive oughts. Not from just is it that's the mistake. Right. The, the, of the course says all we need is anthropology and metaphysics. No, if we recognize you know the, the connatural aughts that most people orient themselves with in their daily moral reasoning and as moral philosophers, if, as moral philosophers, if we can identify you know uh, rigorously, what are the oughts that that we can can identify? I think that's what we need to do. Maybe Marcus, I'll let Marcus ask a question because I'm afraid of dominating our our, our time. Marcus is is a brilliant student. He uh, studied moral philosophy with me uh, and we had your your book uh, before Virtue as one of our textbooks. And so he was uh, showing that to us at the beginning of our talk tonight. Marcus, do, do you have any questions for Dr. Sanford?
3: Uh, tonight. Yeah, thank you, Doctor Sanford. I absolutely love the talk and you two's uh, exchange. Now, I, I do see. Uh, I think uh, one student asked, "Can you define grace in the chat box?" Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, grace is is
1: it, it's uh, the the basic meaning is a kind of, of gift, right? Freely given gift, and um, so when when um, you're gracious to someone, right? You're, you're giving them a, 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 a kind of, of uh, um, attention. You're, you're exercising your, your, um, attentiveness to them in a way that's, that's, um, just a gift. Okay. When, when we talk about, um, grace in a supernatural context, right? Um, the, the fundamental notion is is indeed one of of a gift and every gift has a gift giver and um a recipient right the recipient again can can push off the um the gift or or not accept it and um yeah i'm not i'm not sure where to go if if the person who asked the question is is looking at grace from a, a particular point of view, I was tempted to start talking about how grace perfects nature. Um, but but the fundamental idea is is just um, something that's that's freely bestowed for the benefit of the recipient.
2: There you and go, it, sheesh, That that that's a wonderful definition. Okay. Uh, uh, I know that she has an assignment where she has to define grace. So she's she's oh. <laughs> she's asking everyone this question. She asked it uh, of me earlier on. Oh, good, good. Yeah, I, 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 I really like your answer a lot. Oh, um, thanks. Sean has his hand up. So I'll let Sean ask his question.
0: Yeah, hi, my name is Sean. Uh,
2: hey, Sean. I'm,
0: a, I'm a Chinese international student at uh, Trinity Western University. Um, I study at uh, in leadership, and Ben Birkenstock is my philosophy, uh, introduction of philosophy professor. Wonderful. Um, I've listened to your lecture about uh, true courage and virtue and ethics. Uh, I myself is a fan of Confucianism. This is in the field of philosophy and everything. Um, where Confucian talks about true compassion is about uh, this leads to the ha- like um, the true happiness that we are seeking as the human being, where we do things um, based on our belief and we think what is right, right, and um, and wisdom is about not only about knowledge, as in old Chinese saying that we say that we we are not afraid of thugs, but we're afraid of thugs who are knowledgeable, which means that. Um, we see in the modern days that a lot of people, they're, you know, doctors and professors and all that, but the things that they are doing is not not necessarily doing good, right? Which means that ethics is essential to everyone. Mm-hmm. I guess, um, my question is that, again, I'm, I'm grateful that I have the opportunity to learn at TWU because that, um... I come from a family where my mom believes in Buddhism and my father believes in Taoism. And in Canada, where I've attended to uh, Christian private high school, and now I'm studying at Trinity University, uh, Western University. That I'm grateful because of that they gave me this opportunity, even though that I'm not a Christian, but they still giving me the opportunity to learn uh, things that I want to learn. Now, my question is that um, let's go set aside of race or religion or even nationality, right? If we're talking about human being to human being, right? Um, As we progress as the humanity, what should we do? What are our next steps? Like, how do we implement? How do we educate? Or how do we influence um, everyone in this world in order to to build this um, society where everybody can accept um, that uh, we're basically just human beings, right? We're, um, because I understand that um, in the Bible or even in Chinese philosophy, right? It is basically a textbook of doing what's right, right? Mm-hmm. It's teaching, it's giving us a way of um, telling us uh, what to do, how to live well in our life and all that. So, yeah, that's my question.
1: Okay. Well, um, let me, let me first say that, um, I I appreciated hearing a little bit about your background and, and and where you're you're coming from. Um, and I'm very comfortable staying in, in the, in, um, sort of the strictly philosophical realm. Um, we've we've been bringing in a lot of theological considerations, but, um, I, I, um, um, I think I understand where your, your question is coming from and somebody with whom I, I did a lot of work on Aristotle in particular, um, G1U, uh, was his name. He, he died tragically young. I think it's just 56 years old. Um, and, um, he was one of the readers on my dissertation. And, um, he had studied at at Guelph university and uh, Padua before that and um and then at oxford and and then uh, worked with him in graduate school and he was a taoist um he he was he he went to university um because of his a, a test that he took his family lived in the countryside and and um, was working on a um, rice production um um, farmland, kind of um, structured um, rice production, and he did really well in the tests. And they moved him to schools and and um, the um, um, a couple of cities. And he ended up um, winning a scholarship because he had the best essay of anyone. Um, when when he was at university and, and they sent him to Italy and then Canada. And um he retained his his ancient orientation or his you know his, his initial orientation towards Taoism. Um and we he has a book on on Confucius and Aristotle, which I, I would recommend to you, Sean. And um, um and we We would have very long conversations about the differences and similarities between christianity and and Confucian thought in particular um and um yeah it, it 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 was very sad that he died died so young he he did he did die a christian at the very end but um a christian who who i think would still call himself a confucian and um so, when you were talking about you know, the knowledgeable thug, okay, uh, maybe I'll, I'll launch in there. Um, you know, got to watch out for those knowledgeable thugs. The the um, because they're they have something that can look a lot like virtue, but but is it? And um, one one of the things that Aristotle really emphasizes in his account of the virtues is that a, a virtue is is um, never able to be used wrongly. Um, the moral virtues um, are always for what's best and right. They're always connected to a, a correct um, judgment. And and what uh, Dr. Morrissey and I were talking about is well, how do you know that judgment's correct? How do you get into that? But let's just let's just say we we, we know what a what a virtue is. And um, a, a virtue can't be used wrongly. So, if when you've got a thug, or um, um, thug already has a pretty pejorative claim, but let, let's let's take let's take somebody who's who's um, a great seducer of others, right? Somebody who's who's ruining the lives of others because they're they're really dedicated to just sort of uh, using using sexual partners up right, in a, in, a, in a serial fashion. Uh, this person eats really well, exercises regularly, studies so that he's got all kinds of, of clever things to share, he, he, loves, he loves particularly to, to um, um, find other people who are in university settings and, and he wants to impress them with, with his knowledge, right? But he's, he's doing this with no intention of building a relationship with others. Um, He just he just wants to use someone and then move on. Um, So you might look at that person and think, you know, they're really taking care of himself. He's studying. He's exercising. He's in good shape um, and looks like he's temperate. Looks like he's pursuing knowledge and wisdom. Looks like he's he's, you know, he, he is charming. Right. But all of these things are are used. Are directed towards the the activity of um, um, not respecting the dignity of others, right? He's he's missing the big thing, which is seeing the intrinsic humanity, the the dignity, the preciousness of those others that he just wants to use and 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 you know put another notch in his belt. Or um, that that's that's not a man of virtue. It's possible to have the appearance of virtue, but to be hell bent on doing things that are um, destructive of others, right? And and you don't have to be a, um, a Christian to recognize such things as as wrong, and um, um, that that it's possible to to have. Um, um, to, to utilize what would otherwise be virtue um, for the sake of, of something that's destructive and wrong. And that, that goes back to why prudence is such an important virtue, the master virtue, to, to orchestrate um, one's activities properly. But, but I certainly agree, Sean, that, that there, is a, there is a real um, uh, fundamental significance to recognizing the intrinsic dignity of another. Um, Thank you for your
2: answer.
0: You're welcome. Thank you, Dr. Sanford.
2: Yeah, You're thanks welcome. for your question, Sean. And yeah, thank, thank you for your answer, Dr. Sanford. I have a comment, but Marcus has his hand up. Marcus, I know that you and I have had long conversations about uh, uh, Confucius and Taoism. So what are your thoughts on Sean's question?
3: Yeah, thank you all. Yeah, yeah. and Sean, I'm glad to, I got to meet you today. Uh, I wanted to let you know uh, that I'm I'm in a similar situation. You see, I came to Canada came to Trinity to study back to back in 2013. I met Dr. Morrissey uh, at that time. And my family, a good part of my family uh, are also Buddhist. And I, uh, I identified myself for the longest time as a, a philosophical Taoist. And in fact, so we were talking about loving the ancient pagan. So I also loved the ancient pagan. In fact, I was a pagan, right? Until uh, before my uh, confirmation and, and baptism in uh, 2019. So uh, I think you're right to worry about, uh, Sean, how um, people kind of uh, religion, different cultural tradition becomes a kind of a a battlefield. Uh, Yeah, I think you're right to be worried about that. And what I find is that often it's not these philosophical thoughts that's really disagreeing. What was really causing the conflict is kind of a deep-rooted prejudice, often justified in things like nationalism. And and, and that's very toxic because you, you belittle... The other person in a conversation to a to a kind of a, a symbol to be trampled upon. Oh, you're a Westerner. Oh, you're a Chinese or a Japanese. You know, I think uh, it takes a lot of humility and lots of love. This is where we, I think, uh, you know, being a Christian has been very helpful for me. But you don't have to be a Christian to to discover this kind of love. And I think a love for one another, right? The value that we can feel in one another. That's the that's going to be the beginning point of any reconciliation and the kind of work. And now um, i actually, now I'm a Christian and learning, uh, learning uh, Catholic theology and philosophy, the metaphysics of, uh, of Aquinas, in fact, helped me to understand Confucianism more. In fact, helped me to understand uh, Taoism more. So if you're interested, Sean, uh, you can, uh, ben, ben knows all my uh, contacts. We do have a, a reading group every Friday. Uh, feel free to uh, you know zoom in and then we'd love to have you as a part of the conversation.
0: Oh, when, I would love
3: to, I would love to. That'd be great. Yeah, Ben's uh, Ben knows me very well, so you just ask him. Uh, he is in uh, fact part you. of our group. Yeah, and Dr. Sanford, sorry, I do have a, a couple of quick questions. Um, so the, the first question is: this contemporary movement sometimes called a neo-Aristotelian revival? So uh, in in the field of uh, in the field of moral philosophy, we have that uh, sense uh, as you as you uh, point out in your book, sense Elizabeth Anscombe in the sixties. And then since the 70s, uh, you know, we have, uh, we also have a bit of that in a kind of the, the philosophy of nature and metaphysics side, like Olderberg, uh, Nancy Cartwright, uh, Edward phaser uh, So um, I'd like to just ask you, uh, how would you evaluate this movement? Where do you think it is at? Do you think it's headed towards a, a good direction? Yeah, that's my first question.
1: All right. Well, thanks for the question. In the book, the book is um, you're, you're giving me, a, so to speak, softball um, um, to, uh, to to hit, right? Because I'm 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 arguing in the book that that um, and that um, it, it's not all peachy when it comes to the revival of, of neo Aristotelianism. Um, Elizabeth Anscombe, um, I, I, I love her work. Um, she's such a precise thinker and and really precise, and then she will say some things that are just perplexing that that i i spent a long time thinking about and then i i think i figure it out and and i'm i'm a lot wiser for for spending time um on like two sentences but the the um she she called for um a a revival of of something along the lines of of uh, an account of uh, justice and the good recognizable within the Aristotelian tradition. And it, it was a revival that was needed. She thought because we have become so, um, and she actually invents a word called We've become so consequentialist in our thinking. That is to say, um, and it's a word that's more common now, but um, many people um Many people who should know better because their 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 um, ethicists have justified what common people throughout the ages have recognized to be deeply wrong that that um, it's okay to do something that is morally reprehensible if it brings about a good consequence right so she uses. One example is is that of the you know um, judicial execution of an innocent person for the sake of keeping the peace, right? Um, all kinds of examples of of lying for this, right? So, at, in her day, she she noticed that there there was this growing tendency to provide sophisticated arguments in defense of of actions that are obviously wrong and um you know her her range of things that were obviously wrong might be wider than than some people's i mean she's she one of, one of her um, acts of protest was against her, her university for honoring um truman and she thought it uh, wrong to do that because president Truman had had uh, com- uh, commissioned the dropping of an atomic bomb um, um, a couple of them, right? And and so she thought that that was so obviously against just war theory. Um, the innocent people were killed. That that um, to honor someone would be inappropriate. Not everyone's going to agree with her on that. Um, um, but um, there were many people who justified that action. That was that. That's an example of okay. Yeah, um, you bring about the end of a war, but look at look at the innocents who. Who were killed in that act? So, what what I look at in in this book, you know, since Anscombe initiated, she made this call. We we've got to get back to basics, right? There, there's a problem with consequentialism, and there's there's a problem with the way in which um, we fall back on on terms like an obligation, uh, a sense of ought, that that have become meaningless. We we um, we don't we don't believe. Um, that um, there's a, a divine lawgiver anymore to put force behind those those terms. Um, and, and we can't trust um, a deontologist like Kant uh, because um, the, the, the argument is just too, uh, uh, she, I think, uses the word hideous at one point. <laughs> um, it's 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 just like this thought world that that doesn't really meet the need of 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 practical reasoners who um, are trying to think through how to act well um so now we've got justified and empty approaches to uh, thinking about what's right and wrong with really bad consequences on a large scale right um so think of drone warfare now, or or other actions that that um, um, are going on, and and um, we're not paying much attention to it at all, right? Think of, of human rights abuses on on grand scales, right? Justified because of the sake of some consequence, it's what we ought to do um, because somebody, something, some term with a mesmeric force, as Anscombe would say, is. Is is behind that. Um, so the revival, if she's the grandmother, many people who who said, yeah, she's right, she's onto something. This revived this notion of virtue. Um, in, in in much of that revival, there's been a falling back onto the kind of consequentialist um, and, and empty deontological reasoning that that she was castigating. So um, some some attempts have been made to have virtue without without a rich anthropology, which she calls a philosophical psychology. We, we, need a, we need a philosophical psychology that can really undergird a robust account of what's just and good. Um, and, and unfortunately, we, we we haven't found it in a lot of the mainstream thinkers. And, and I spent a lot of time um, explaining how that's that's the case, but we have found it in, in some others who are less mainstream. Um, and, um, but even some of those who are regarded as virtue ethicists, like Alistair McIntyre, um, he does not think of himself as a virtue ethicist, not by a long shot. He doesn't like that term, um, uh, because that's someone like Rosalind Herstiles. So um, I, I think, I think virtue, ethics, virtue ethics needs to meet um, natural, <coughs> natural law thinking. And, and I think um, a lot of people working within the, the uh, Thomistic tradition I've been doing that for a long time. And, um, but they need to be aware of, of uh, terminology they use. And, and we all need to be sensitive to a tendency to fall into consequentialist reasoning. Um, another word for that is rationalization. Um, right? when, you're, when you're rationalizing as opposed to exercising practical reason, you're, you're in moral trouble.
2: Such a great answer. Thank you so much, Dr. Sanford. Um, I'm glad we got the terminology right and we named the villain consequentialism. I believe the character you were speaking about earlier, the technical term is a player. Yes, yeah. players are consequentialists and so too thugs. Uh, uh, Sean brought up uh, the thug character. And I always like to illustrate what consequentialism to my philosophy class is by saying it's, it's the thug life. Yeah. The consequentialism is. In essence, that's right. Uh, but Marcus, I I know you have more questions, Marcus, and I'm looking at the clock. at seven forty. Remind me, Marcus, what was your deal with Doctor Sanford? Because uh, sometimes we have speakers until seven thirty, sometimes till eight o'clock. I don't want to keep him here past his you know uh, time where he wants his meal and his sleep.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly, Doctor Sanford. Thank you so much for for your time. Yeah,
1: you're you're, you're welcome. I I um I'm, I'm happy to go for a few more minutes. Um and okay. uh, you know it's it's pushing 11 here but, but yeah uh, um but i'm i'm on central time so it's pushing 10 and, and uh, yeah uh,
2: well happiness yeah. is activity not a meal and sleep so right. uh, yes, maybe you'll well. keep going yeah. for a couple of minutes marcus yeah. did you have another uh question or comment
3: yes yes yeah it is it's related to my last question yeah i am very much a big fan of the the neo-istolian revival and, uh, and you know this is kind of what we try to do in our in our class and in our reading group and one of the one of the issue is when we when we talk about uh, this notion neo to Thomistic revival uh you know uh, sometimes it's met with a kind of suspicion sometimes uh, we get a response that uh, uh, you know can we really you know bring them back because you know they were in a, a very different historical time where, they seem to have fundamental, maybe not fundamental, but moral convictions that uh, that just seem unthinkable. So one of the answer, one of the uh, target I I often get is, for example, Aristotle's view on, on natural slave, and for example, the uh, uh, the view of women. So um, yeah, I would like to ask you, Dr. Stanford, how how would you approach this kind of issue? You know, I I, I do think the essentials of Aristotelian Thomistic uh, psychology. Uh, It stands, but how do we uh, explain how do we approach these also difficult issues uh, on the side? Thank you.
1: Yeah, no, a good question and and an important one. Um, So it would be a mistake to think that um, reviving Aristotle um, means agreeing with him on every point. Um, I would say that's a very un Aristotelian. way to proceed but but in order to arrive at at an understanding of why that's un Aristotelian you're going to have to read a fair bit of Aristotle um because he he is he, he he trains us how to think and um um and yet he's he's also a man animated by by um some prejudices and Um, Prejudgments, that is to say, and and a man of his times and and, and not perfect. It's amazing, though, um, how the methodology that he applies, the distinctions that he exercises um, um, were, were brought to such good effect. And one of the reasons why I think Aristotle was so effective was he read his predecessors. Much of what we know about the so-called pre-Socratic philosophers we get from Aristotle, and Aristotle spent 20 years with his teacher Plato, and disagrees profoundly with Plato, and yet is deeply Platonic, and um, the so one needs to whoever it is, right? We need to um, dig deeply into. The tradition wrestle with thinkers who, over time, many people have recognized as worthy of our attention, and read them deferentially before we read them critically. I'm, I'm teaching a graduate course right now on Nietzsche and his understanding of the Greeks. I'm not an Aegean. I'm not an Aegean. Okay, but boy, do I learn a lot when I when I read Nietzsche, and uh, boy, does Nietzsche learn a lot when he reads the Greeks and we've been working through his lectures on the pre, he calls them pre-Platonic philosophers because Socrates he counts as, as um, still of an unmixed type in the sense that he was an original thinker whereas Plato was a mixed type in the sense that he synthesized other thinkers. Um, but, and I tell my students, some whom are deeply nervous about reading Nietzsche. Well, you gotta read him deferentially, see it from his point of view, and, and then and then you can move into the critical. Um I I read I read Nietzsche um because I I I'm rooted in in Aristotle, and I and I see Nietzsche as as one of the most worthy opponents of 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 Aristotle. But again, um when I read Aristotle, I don't agree with everything, but I have to spend a lot of time trying to figure out what he, what he means. And, and um, that time has been rewarded time and time again um, in ways that other authors have not rewarded me um, with, with the time investment. Um, And and you do have to read Aristotle slowly. And I, I, last year I taught, I don't teach nearly as much as I used to. So uh, the the last time I taught was a graduate course on Aristotle's metaphysics, just that work, um, this was fall of 2021 or 2020. Um, was that the last course I taught? Anyways, um, so line by line, going through the metaphysics, working with the Greek and, and trying to, to make what sense we can from that. Um, so that, that, that teaches me, it teaches my students how to think, how to pull things apart, how to try to pull them back together. But we also do have deep principles, uh, principles in nature. Principles. I I I defend his his account of the causes. I I think uh, many of his psychological insights still stand the test of time. He didn't. He, he, there are some things he missed. Like he does not have a notion of the will. He doesn't. He doesn't quite understand free choice of the will. Right. That that comes later from thinkers who are thinking about Aristotle and other other figures. So um, one does not need to um, agree with, with um, one shouldn't agree with Aristotle's view of women. Um, um, he's, he's wrong. And yet he's got reasons even for that, right? What, what, you know, what went wrong? What were the reasons? Well,
2: on and- that note, uh, sorry to interrupt, I see that Laura has her hand up. So I think for a nice segue to our last question, Laura, what's on your mind?
4: Um, Hello. Uh, Thank you, uh, Dr. Sanford and Dr. Morrissey and Marcus for this talk. It was uh, quite lovely. I was walking home and I'm wearing an ent shirt.
1: Nice.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was uh, walking home through the woods while you were talking about that and thought it was
3: quite funny. But um, That's parapathetic.
4: Oh yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, okay, so my question is um I came from a secular uh university and then uh came to do my graduate studies at Trinity, which has been uh quite a difference um in terms of kind of freedom of speech, I th- I find, um, and freedom of thought, I suppose as well. So my question would be. I, I see the university kind of uh leaning. So in terms of virtue, there's kind of I think a flip uh with virtue, if that makes sense. And then um and then also uh with a prioritization of um money, I, I, I see where there's a lack of a prioritization of the humanities, um, where I think you find all of these virtues within, like you said, our actions. Um, and what's what's the role of the institution uh, in nurturing these virtues within students? And uh, I guess the body of the university at large and um, yeah. That, that's, I
1: think. that's that's actually a a, a a a question with existential force for me, right? Because I, I am I am the president of a university, and um, it we're at the University of Dallas, a university that's long been known for our embrace of the humanities, um, and um, and we don't have money flowing in from grants and. Um, Uh, foundations wanting to support sciences, although we do have good sciences. We have an 85% medical acceptance rate for undergraduate students, for instance, um, which is, at least in the United States, very high. And all kinds of successes. But for me, um, I've spent a lot of time. I interrupted this book that I started writing on, uh, Cardinal Virtues and the Common Good, because I've been working on a book on on the virtues of uh, liberal education. And and, um, my theme for it is is friendship. And and I think of a a university worthy of the name as a a place that cultivates friendship for the sake of friendship. Um, It's a a place in which you learn to cultivate a friendship for the truth, a kind of um, speaking in a a broad way, Uh, Jacques Maritain has this image that there's a kind of nuptial relationship between the mind and and beings in the world, Um, a a, a kind of of, um, marriage is possible. Um, And and I extend that a little bit to think about friendship, right? We we familiarize ourselves with with certain principles. That's possible because of the way in which professors extend friendship to students and students to professors. And that's a, a really important friendship that's, that's overlooked. And in fact, sometimes treated with, with fear and, and, um, um you, you don't get that cultivation of friendship unless, unless you have real encounters, um, you know, in classes, you know, classroom experiences, zoom is great. This has been a wonderful conversation, but, um, we're all going to pop off at the end. And, and, um, um, you know, I, I probably will not see most of you again right so we're, we we're not able to develop a deep relationship but within a university your um, your professors are there for you and and you're there with your professors and then friendships amongst fellow travelers who are wrestling with with the, the same um, uh, many of the the same um, books and um, laboratory experiments and and um, uh, cultural events on campus and so forth. And, and you're, you're trying to figure those out. And then, and then ultimately a university worthy of its name ought to be um, cultivating a friendship with God. And um, so I, I don't think that a university that justifies itself only on the basis of free inquiry um, is is doing enough. And many universities that have justified themselves on the basis of free exchange of ideas um, have gone the way of restricting ideas, radically so, um, with, a, with a kind of ideological direction. You can't say certain things. You can't think certain thoughts. Um, you can't read Aristotle anymore because he says horrible things about women and slaves. Well, he does say horrible things about, about women and, and slaves. Um, and I think um, you shouldn't cancel him because of that. There's right. But but there are places where that happens and and there are places that have traditionally or for many years celebrated freedom of inquiry. Right. Well, the the list of things you're free to read has been growing smaller. And, you know, maybe you don't need to spend all that time reading anyways, because what you need is just technical skill. And, 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 and then you, will be, you know, a productive member of society. That'd be great. Well, what about cultivating your humanity? What about cultivating um, your, your um, desire to know about the deepest, most important things. And, and that takes time. There are no corners that can be cut there. It takes time. And um, it, it takes, uh, it takes the love of, professors to help to cultivate that and, and dedication on the part of students and students need friendships with each other to help sustain them along that path. And if, it, if it's a religious institution, a faith-based institution, well, for goodness sake, um, be that and welcome everyone. Um, you know, We're a Catholic university and, and we were um, from the very beginning open to men and women of all faiths and all ethnicities. And that wasn't the case when we were founded at many other schools. But that's part of what it is to be Catholic, to be open to everyone, universal. Um, and and you're not doing a favor to anyone if you pretend as though you don't have those particular features of your faith. Right. So, you know, we've got uh, a lot of students who go to daily mass and other opportunities for, for the sacraments offered on our campus. Everyone is welcome. It's not forced on anyone. and. Um, Whatever your background, whatever your belief system or lack thereof, you're you're welcome to study here, but we're not going to pretend that we're not serious about our our commitment to uh, the Catholic faith, right? And students who are not Catholic love it because it's an environment in which they're free to to, um, question and push and prod. And and we actually have free exchange of ideas and rational disagreements and civil discourse. And... um, um, and a conviction on the part of, of many professors that you know faith and reason are able to exercise together, right? So some of some of some, many universities are still laboring under the false notion that faith and reason are irreconcilable; that you're not really pursuing a life of reason if faith is part of the picture. And and now we're seeing the other end of of um, this. Um, this line of argumentation about reason alone um, and, and free inquiry, where, where those many of those places have become constrained in, in the ability to to wrestle with the most important questions of human life, and and that's a shame. And and I hope I hope those places turn around. And and uh, um, it, it's it's wonderful what what you're all doing at Texas. Um, Western University and cultivating a, a community there of, of um, those within a broader university um, and the broader university itself. I, yeah, I, I'm i not going to hazard any, any speculation about what's going on there. But but you I think. This call
2: us Texas Western. Western or are we now Trinity, taking over Trinity, by the University Western, of Trinity Dallas? Oh, Trinity West. I will happily vote for this takeover. I, I think it sounds <laughs> wonderful. But can we keep the original name Trinity Western?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: Our guest speaker tonight has been Dr. Janet, Jonathan Sanford.